All right, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather with the family of God and open up the Bible and learn what you've said and see how you've acted in history, learn about your person, person, and, and nature and purposes and promises and how you were at work at the very beginning of the church spreading the gospel. Help us have wisdom and understanding. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, on verse 49 of Acts 13. <clears throat> and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And so one of the themes that's very evident in Luke-Acts is that messianic salvation has come on the scene of history as predicted by the prophets and that God intended that it would be spread starting with in Israel but then already uh, showing that others were going to be involved just by some of the things that even happened in Luke as far as people who respond and who who don't and there are some people that they would normally consider outsiders, Samaritans, whatever, that come. And then there's the uh, teaching exactly in Luke 24 that they're supposed to bring this to the end of the earth in Acts 1.8 and so on. So repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all. And one of the things that we see as we've gone so far in Acts is that those who believe end up being the very ones who spread the gospel to whole areas. God works that way. That's still true today. It's amazing the influence of one convert and what it can be in a given city family situation, extended family, tribe. I hear from people around the world from Critical Issues Commentary and people hear the number one way the gospel spreads is through the word of mouth and testimony of Christians. Okay? And I'm not belittling the need for preachers and evangelists and so on. But once somebody does believe, then it starts to spread into the whole culture and family of the people who believed. And so I want to show how this is thematic. I have on my slide a list of verses that show this. Acts 6, 7, 9, 42, 12, 24, 19, 10, and 19, 26. I'll read some of those. <clears throat> Acts 6, 7. And the word of the of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So when the book of Acts or even Luke Acts as a two volume work talk about the Jews being those who opposed the gospel it isn't implying that this is universal. Okay? So if you look at Acts 6-7, it 
There were even priests that were part of the temple system who also believed. But the majority, the people with authority and power, the, the ruling class, on the whole, rejected Christ. And that's a theme in Luke. Jesus was on a journey, starting in Luke 9.51, to go be rejected in Jerusalem. And that rejection is at one and the same time tragic. There's pathos, but, but also part of God's plan and purpose. Because rejection in Jerusalem brings the spread elsewhere. Okay? Now, Jesus commanded it. And, in fact, Ryan, you have the, you have the mic there? Could you look up uh, Luke 24, 47? And then, um, who wants to do... Uh, Clitoris, do you want to do Acts 1-8? So after Ryan reads his, I'll have you read Acts 1-8. And so there's always a mixed response. Some of it good, some of it somewhat indifferent, some of it openly hostile, and you see that throughout. Okay, Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the revealed will of God is that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the Lord's name beginning from Jerusalem. And now Jesus himself, before the ascension, gave further instructions. That's Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So it's going to go forward and go out. Acts narrates that process, ending basically in Rome. And we can fill in some details from some of the things Paul said elsewhere. But we know this actually happened. Now, the Luke passage includes the idea of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, it would probably take us too much off track, but I actually ran computer search. Um, If anybody's interested, here they are. I got two pages of the word for repent, metanoeo, yeah, to repent, and then repentance. And uh, repentance, here's all the verses in Luke Acts on repentance. Here's repent as a verb, half a page of verses. And uh, let me give you a few examples. Luke 13, 3. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. The idea was, who's the worst sinner? Who is it that needs to repent? All the, all the sons and daughters of Adam. All right? Um, but it starts already early with John the Baptist. He came into the district, Luke 3, 3, around the Jordan preaching of baptism, repentance for forgiveness 
of sins. And then Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32. And then when this started happening with Gentiles, there was a potential problem. We've studied it. Acts 11.18, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Some, after the last time I taught, I talked to a couple people with a common question. I know Eric plans on addressing some of these, but let me just plant some seeds here. According to the Bible, and it's really strong in Luke Acts, the need for repentance, which is to accompany gospel preaching, is that one and the same time, a human responsibility and a moral duty, and if it happens, it was granted by God. Now you can, and I've debated for, back during the decade of the 90s, it seemed like the only topic I was debating anybody about, mostly people from our own church that wanted to debate me. And it seems, according to human wisdom, that those two ideas are contradictory and cannot possibly coexist. In other words, either repentance is something that a lost sinner alienated from God with no work of grace can bring out through whatever tools they have, no special help, or it's a gift granted by God. Gentiles were granted repentance. And the argument was always, if it's granted by God, it cannot be a moral duty. It has to be um, something that anybody could do, otherwise you can't command them to do it. So the, the idea in popular evangelical theology is that God can only command what man already has the ability to do. Now, I spent 10 years writing, debating, contesting, being rejected by many friends who never want anything to do with me again to this very day because I claim that God actually grants repentance using the means of the gospel preached. And they argued that all moral duty implies human ability. If you don't have human ability, you cannot have a duty. And now I've written about this. I've talked about it. I've explained it. I've gone over it every possible way I could think of going over it. Some people still think that way. And I've actually in seminary class, during the 90s I was in seminary most of that decade. So I was debating this amongst high-level seminary students who were very smart, most of whom disagree with me. And some of my professors did, not all of them. And so I came up with illustrations. I, I proved that even in common jurisprudence, people don't believe that. We say ignorance of the law is no excuse. And we might say, well, the law book, the books of all the statutes in them, between the United States, Hennepin County, state of Minnesota, the city I'm living in, you'd have a pile this high of everything that I have no excuse for not doing. I said that kind of thing in class. 
but yet when I go to court, am I held guilty? Yes. Because I have a duty to know the applicable law and to follow it. And I gave it many other illustrations. And I also gave the illustration where Paul says, cursed is he who does not abide in all the things in the book of this law to do it. And you, Paul used that as proof that everyone under the old covenant was cursed by relying on law works. So if Paul really believed that humans had ability, that his logic is irrational and it's not logic at all. If you have the ability to do everything written in the book of the law, you could just do it and not be cursed. And it wouldn't follow that everybody under the law was cursed. That's Paul's logic in Galatians 3. Is that the right chapter? So, dear ones, Eric will go into this. I'm just giving you a little preview. But this is always debated. And I determined by God's grace that I have to preach what the author is saying in the Bible. And if it means my friends don't like me, if it means I get fired, if it means whatever happens, it means whatever, I have a moral duty and I'll have to answer to God for teaching accurately every word that I'm given the duty of teaching. So I'm telling you, it doesn't mean I'm right. I believe the priesthood of every believer. I can be proven wrong. But I am telling you that in Luke X, and you're going to have a hard time proving this one wrong, (laughs) God commands repentance and he grants it. Those two things are stated. We just read it. Uh, The God had also granted repentance to the Gentiles. Uh, Eric, you can go ahead and say something if you want. You know, I was just going to mention, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commands everyone to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. It's a moral obligation. We are to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And yet I don't think that there's really a human being on the planet, if they're really serious and honest, would admit that they're perfect. And yet what that shows is the inability of man. You can't be perfect even though you're commanded to do so. And so you're reliant upon a God who can make you perfect through the shed blood of Christ. And so that command I often use to show the moral obligation, but also the idea that only God can do that for us. Right. Eric's put his finger on a key thing that resolved this for me when I first studied it. The command to do what we innately cannot do is a means God uses to convert us. I'm letting that sink in. I don't know if it is or not. In other words, sometime we hear the universal call. What is to be preached? See, because I've gotten nasty emails since email was invented telling me that I can't include repentance in gospel preaching. And if I do that, I'm adding works and I'm guilty of the Galatian heresy. And then the other thing they say, well, then if you are going to preach it, repentance can't be any more than changing your mind about the facts about Jesus. In other words, giving mental assent to facts. But I know for sure there are many people who do give that mental assent 
that aren't converted. They can actually write books about it, like Rudolf Boldman's entry in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament under faith, one of the best I've read. The only problem is he doesn't have it. He's one of those German theologians known for not being that orthodox. But there's a man who, with his brilliance and understanding of the biblical languages, was able to look at the entire Bible about what is said about faith from the Old and New Testament and describe accurately how the biblical writers believed faith was and what it was and, and all of its nuances. And I saw that. So how can Boldman get this right? Because he's a good reader, but that doesn't mean he's regenerated. So, you dear ones, you don't have to shy away from telling people exactly what the Bible's saying in, for fear they won't be able to do it. Because I got plenty of fear I'm not able to do it. In a sense that I don't perfectly obey everything of my own. I, I want to be better, but it takes God's grace. But God telling us what he, his law says, telling us what's required of us, drives us to the cross where we find the blood of Jesus. And so repentance in Luke Acts is used with synonymous terms. Sometimes when you're not sure of a, of a definition, now I've, I've sent this to some of the ones that want to debate me, and they're saying repentance, metanoia, means a change of mind, so it's just a mental assent to facts. So I use where there's a synonymously parallel phrase. Okay? And when you have a synonymous parallelism, that helps you gain a diff- definition. Boy, on the fly, let me think of an analogy. The boat was filling up with piscatorial entities. The fish were really biting. (laughs) That's the best I can think of. If you weren't so sure about the piscatorial entities filling the boat you would definitely understand the second. But so the synonymous parallelism, the one that's clear helps you understand the other one. So how does that work with repentance? Well, in Luke Acts, as in Acts 26.18, let's, let's all turn to Acts 26.18 while we're talking about it. It's not on my list here. I'll have to go look it up. I'll show you what I mean by this, as this word is spreading, why am I talking about this on verse 49? Because this is explaining what, how Luke 24, um, uh, 47 and Acts 1, 8 happened in those, and there was a mention of repentance for forgiveness of sins. That's why I'm doing this. Okay, Acts 26, 18 we have a case where the same idea is used using different terms. <clears throat> now, this was what Jesus told Paul to preach and to do in the desired result. Acts twenty six eighteen. Now, I've got the King James here in my little Greek Bible. To open their eyes and to turn them 
from darkness and light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And then it goes on to talk about the inheritance, those who are sanctified by faith. Now, in Acts 1.8, I got that right? Uh, or certainly Luke 24.47, there's repentance for forgiveness of sins. And at the end of Acts, there's a different term used for the same idea. Term, epistrepo. See if I find that here. Yeah, epistrepho is the term there. It means to turn or synonymously with repent. How do you know what that means? Well, turn what? From darkness to light. That's more than just having different facts in your brain. From the power of Satan to God. That's more than just having different facts that you're thinking about that they may receive forgiveness of sins. So epistrepo is synonymous with metanoeo. And so therefore we know that repent means to turn from sin and darkness and Satan and evil and all the things that were true to the light of God in Christ and to be in a totally different domain. Brian. I've spoken to lots of Christians and in this church even who have said that they had made that mental change at a certain point in their life, but it wasn't until later that they realized that they weren't really saved at that point in time and they didn't make the transfer from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of Christ until later on. Yeah, and I can't, that, and a lot of people say that, and I think it's what happens when you grow up in a Christian home, and you have it up here, but you don't have it down here. And when it comes down here, that's your real conversion. That, I understand that. And I'm not saying it's wrong to say, I believe in the resurrection of Christ, and I believe the creeds of you know, the Christological creeds. Those things are accurate, and to say I believe them, I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. But um, conversion is a change of domains. So I've tried to help people, and I'm trying to help all of us, see that we don't have to fear uh, teaching salvation by works when we preach Repent and believe the gospel. Because you know what's shocking is that people say you can't do that when Jesus commanded it? John MacArthur started a firestorm about this in the 80s when he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And he's still to this day by some people declared a heretic that teaches salvation by works. And I, I found somebody was trolling through CIC website and found a positive quotation of I had in there somewhere about something MacArthur said and accused me of being a heretic because I quote, quoted MacArthur positively. And then he just blasted me with all this stuff that MacArthur teaches salvation by works. 
Now, let me tell you what also goes along with that. And this is called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. What goes along with that is the idea that lordship isn't for, is a higher order experience for some Christians. And so when you give mental assent to the facts, or raise your hand, or you go forward, or you make a decision, then you're a Christian. But if you want to be really good Christian, you go to a different meeting where you make Jesus Lord over your life. And have you ever heard that? Make Jesus Lord? Well, just when I hear that, I kind of start backing up a little. Why? Why do I make Jesus? Why do I feel odd about that? Because he is Lord, and we have to confess that. I can't make Jesus something he isn't. And they might say, well, you're making him Lord of your life. Well, what you're doing is repenting and turning to him and serving him as the Lord by God's grace. And that's not a higher order experience. That's conversion. And and remember Acts 26, 18. It'll get you through a lot of those debates. Yes, Norm. This is a great topic. I was just thinking about that this week. And uh, I was listening to a person, and he was talking about, uh, you know, that there are laws that Christians need to be keeping, and if we don't, it's a sin. But, but he says, you know, every Christian sins. And he says, I sin every day, but, but I repent, and then God forgives me, and everything is fine. But it, it was kind of the attitude like repentance is like a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, you just... There was nothing about... Uh, you know that you have to turn and go the other way, that when you sin, that you're, it, it grieves you that you sin and you don't want to sin and you turn around and you talk about the lordship. There's, there's, there was no idea in that that maybe maybe it should be changing my life too and not just, oh, I'm happy that I'm yeah. forgiven. So there, there is such a thing as false assurance. Yeah. Right. And if... Acts 26.18 is true and that's what conversion looks like that doesn't mean we'd never sin but it means we can't live in the domain of darkness and Hebrews gives us unbelievably powerful analogy and it's from the wilderness wanderers when they got out in the wilderness and they some people tried to start a rebellion against Moses. Does Moses speak for God? Why can't we do it? Why do we have to listen to him? We're tired of manna. Moses up on Sinai, we can't see him. Let's make a golden calf. We can see that. We want something else. We want meat. We want a different spokesperson. We don't like it. This is from the same people who are crying out in Egypt for Yahweh to come and save them because they couldn't stand the slavery anymore. So Hebrews gives an analogy that it would be apostasy if God takes you out of Egypt, it would be apostasy to go back to it and serve Pharaoh. So these things are very real moral imperatives given in the Bible that all Christians should take seriously, I hope, too. And it doesn't mean 
that, we're, that there's something wrong with our theology. Okay? Because going from darkness to light, if that's not what conversion is, then what was Jesus talking about in John? He said, I came that, that whoever believes in me would see the light of life and no longer live in darkness. How can you live in darkness and have received the light of Christ, who is the one who brings light? And when conversion is all of a sudden, there's light where it was all darkness. And so you're not sinning by preaching to the whole crowd, repent and believe the gospel, because Jesus commanded that. And so I defended John MacArthur about that, and I still do. I believe he was right. And I also like the book, The Gospel According to the Apostles, that he wrote as a follow-up. So they got mad and called him a heretic, so he wrote another book. Hey, Eric, go ahead. You know, there's a great passage that proves exactly what Bob is saying regarding mental assent. Mental assent cannot save a person, and that should really refute the whole people who, all the people who are against the lordship salvation idea that John MacArthur had. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to, it's James 2.19. And this really shows that mental assent itself cannot save. James 2.19, James is talking about what kind of faith saves. And he uses the Shema. The Shema is the famous Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one. And and here in James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one. There's the Shema. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the point is, even the demons, they believe. They have mental assent. They know who God is. They know who Christ is. So they have mental assent to the facts. They believe that those things are true. They know God, but they want nothing to do with him. And that's why the Reformers had a threefold aspect of saving faith. The first was knowledge. You have to have knowledge to be saved. They call it notitia in the Latin the second was a census, which is mental assent, but you're still not saved. The third part was fiducia, where it's for me. So it's one thing for me to say, I believe this chair is a chair and I believe it'll hold me. That's mental assent, but until I sit in it, that, that's fiducia. I'm showing that's for me. This, this chair will hold me. And in a sense, that's a pictorial way of pointing out what salvation is. It's not only enough to say, I believe Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, but he's got to be for you. It's that idea of where, you know what, I need him. I want him. And that's the moral aspect of salvation. Because people love their sins and their deeds of darkness, oftentimes they know who Christ is, but they want nothing to do with him because they want to live in their sins. And that's something only God can change in our heart. (coughs) Yes, and thank you, Eric. Very good. Very good clarification. So, Luke 2447. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Don't be intimidated, dear brothers and sisters. We're to proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins and preach Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him, what he calls us to do, which is repent and believe the gospel. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. That's what we need to do. Now, that's what the apostles did. Now, because we've we've seen that. The topic here is going to be now, as we go forward, there's going to be a mixed reaction throughout Acts. 
There's going to be positive reception. There's going to be people say, well, we'll hear you later about it. And there's going to be violent hostility. So let's go to verse 50. So there was some people who believed in Pisidian Antioch. We've seen that. Now verse 50 of Acts 13. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Uh, I'd say that fits into the negative response. (laughs) Okay. So there were some converted people who received the word with joy. And then there's people who said, no, you got to get out of here. And so, again, it would take too long, but I have a printout here from, uh, I got a new commentary. I love really good commentaries. They're worth their weight in Logos software, I guess you should say. Um, Schnabel. I just bought a new commentary recently on Acts by Dr. Schnabel. And wow, does he have some good stuff. He has here the reality of missionary work. And then he just shows all the various responses and what he did and how people responded in good in, in one opposition or belief or whatever. But I wanted a comment he made. I wanted to quote Dr. Schnabel in his commentary on Acts, especially in verse 50 here, 51, 52, and so on. Quote, quoting this professor or whatever his job is besides writing commentaries. Quote, Paul did not pick specialized audiences, but proclaimed the gospel to anyone who was willing to listen, whether they were educated or uneducated, powerful or disenfranchised, freeborn or slaves, men or women. Then he says, while specialized ministries, specific groups have advantages, missionaries, evangelists, pastors, and teachers should never forget that the good news of Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed and explained to everyone willing to listen without exception. And I reread an article. I'll be talking about this in a sermon coming up in July that I, I finished already. And I reread an article from 15, 20 years ago where I surveyed that whole idea and and told some stories about when I was in seminary as they were trying to teach me that we needed to do it that way. In other words, specialize. If you want to be successful, they told me, as a pastor, you better get a specialized target group and, and then organize everything around that and don't worry about anything else. And so then we had to go visit a successful church who had done that. I wrote about this, I think, in issue 88. Well, I still remember the went to this church and they'd gone from a few hundred people to 2,000. How did they get so big? How did they have their church grow? Well, they decided to specialize in really exciting, you know, great children ministry. And the brochure for the church showed a bunch of children dragging their parents to church parents not so sure they wanted to go. 
And so they made it so entertaining, so professional, with great actors and actresses and musicians and talented people, so that they could go in the neighborhood and say, do you think your children should be growing up in Sunday school? Yeah, I don't really go to You've got to see this. And so they drug in all of these people so their kids would be really entertained. And then they had some great music and stuff so that it wasn't boring for the adults while their kids were there. And that's how they went from a few hundred people to 2,000. But I think Schnabel has a good point. That's very specialized. And the other thing is they never said anything about what they were actually preaching to the children or the parents. They told us what was in their statement of faith, but that's never preached in a pulpit in most cases. But everything was about, look at the facility. Look at these kids. Look at how excited they are. Look at how many of them are coming to church. And their parents are going to come because otherwise they feel guilty their kids aren't growing up in Sunday school. Well, that's what they were doing. But see, is that what Paul said or what Jesus commanded in the Great Commission? I'm not against Sunday school or children's ministry, but isn't the gospel, what did it say? The repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. It didn't specify gender, age group, economic status, suburbia, inner city, ethnicity. It didn't specify anything. What the church ended up looking like in any city was whatever the grace of God brought to pass when the gospel was believed. And I'll be preaching on this in, 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 in Ephesians 4 about unity. The unity of the spirit is what God creates when he converts somebody. And immediately upon conversion, you have unity with others who are born of God. And it doesn't depend on who you were, what you look like, where you're from. It just is. And I knew that myself immediately. It didn't matter. I wasn't expecting that when I ended up in church, that it would be like a rock concert that I'd like to go to. Because even if it was, it wouldn't have been as good as the real one. Yeah, uh, I hope we get that. So I, I think Dr. Schnabel, uh, this doesn't mean we can't do the best we can to utilize everybody's talents to reach everybody we possibly can, including children and parents and, and people that don't have anywhere to go to church. Luann, if you want to bring the mic over to her. In that quote uh, by Dr. Schnobel, he mentioned twice, willing to listen. And I think that's a part the church is missing today, too, is the absolute miracle of conversion. You know, we're looking for so many signs and so many wonders, but the biggest miracle is the conversion of somebody's heart. Yeah. Thank you, Luann. You bet. Uh, willing to listen is a real good thing. Where was it? Oh, I was just rereading some of my Acts. There was a place where Paul got exasperated. He had gone to the Jews first, as he usually did, and got rejected. 
And then he said, somebody probably can find this quickly, but he's, I think maybe in the next chapter, he says, well, we're going to go to the Gentiles because they'll also listen. You don't want to listen, maybe the Gentiles will. But in Luke Acts, whoever listens is the one that God is going to use and bless and, and forgive and redeem. And, and listening meant more than being willing to hear it out, but respond with joy, which is the theme also in Luke X, which is joy of salvation. And there are stories in it. I think I'm, remember the 10 lepers that were healed and they went off and only one came back and thanked Christ and it was a Samaritan foreigner who thanked God, who responded with joy and thankfulness and hope. And uh, I see I have something from Tannehill. Let me look at my notes here. I just mentioned Schnabel. And then I have a paragraph that I uh, wrote. No, this is Schnabel's ideas. The Jews who resisted the gospel found support from two groups. God-fearing women of importance who attended the synagogue service, that's our verse here, and influential members of the local aristocracy, perhaps including the Duvery, the highest municipal magistrates. And then he said these women may have been benefactors of the local synagogue. So there were movers and shakers who were important who said, okay, we're not going to go along with this. We're going to stop it right here, right now. So persecution broke out because people with vested authority and vested positions have decided this isn't what they want. The Gentiles didn't want the gods, the polytheistic gods, to be offended and their followers. And the prominent Jews didn't want trouble in the synagogues. <coughs> I make a comment here on my slide. The true gospel rarely causes a neutral reaction and never universal popularity. Is it? Why? Why is that? Didn't Jesus say narrow is the gate? Narrow is the path that leads to salvation. Few there are that find it and walk on it. Wide is the gate. Why is the path? at least a destruction, many on that. So we can't judge whether the message preached is the valid message based on whether <coughs> it's universally popular. Now, the only way I, I spent those 10 years a lot of them in seminary where all of these things from a lot of sources were right in front of me and rubbing shoulders with all these other students and professors and learning things and seeing what was going on. Having some great teachers. I can't complain about some of the fantastic teachers I had. But it became pretty clear after hearing all these different ideas that if you're going to have clarity of the message that's preached 
from the pulpits of a church, you better get that clarity from Scripture alone. Because if you start reading all the books about how to be successful, you'll never end up with clarity. And you'll very rarely <coughs> end up with repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So there's rejection, there's persecution, but yet there are some people who receive the word. We'll see later Lydia, Philippi. God used her and her Oh, the church has started in that city. Now let's go to verse 51. So how did they respond to the fact that persecution broke out and they were driven away? Acts 13, 51. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. It's all right. See ya. What's this meaning? Uh, Somebody maybe knows. What does it mean to shut? Why would you shake off the dust of your feet? What does that got to do with anything? Anybody know? Giving up on them. Okay. That's clear from the context. So I I did a little, I wasn't quite sure either, but earlier in uh, Luke, it came up. And and, uh, Joel... Does Lonnie know? Go ahead, Lonnie. Well, in the in the Gospels, uh, Jesus was telling his disciples, if you're rejected uh, in a certain town or something like that, you should shake your the dust of the, the your feet off. Um, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. It was in the Gospels yeah. too. And, and another thing. Uh, I had this Jehovah's Witness came to my door one time and I shared the gospel with him. You know, I, I tried to make him understand. I brought up, uh, I think it's John 58 about uh, how, <clears throat> let's see, I think that's how, how they, they're stoning Jesus. They're claiming, they're denying the deity of Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to to say that Jesus is God in the flesh, yes. that He's Lord. Right. And anyway, this there was only one person that came to my door, uh, a young guy. And when he left, I saw him leave. He walked off the sidewalk, and he he stamped his feet. <laughs> Like he was doing that. Yeah. Yeah, shame on you for not believing in the biblical Christ. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Luke 9, 5 is probably what you're referencing. Uh, Luke 9, 5 says, Whosoever will not receive you when you go out of the city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So now we know it's a testimony against them. Now, Joel Green's commentary on Luke, I found this. It's what he says. Dusting of the feet was an act connected to ridding oneself of defilement, such as when when one had transversed uh, traversed in Gentile lands. So the Jews, if they'd been walking through Gentile territory, which was unclean, and of course they were wearing sandals, and their feet would get dusty. That's why the washing of the feet. 
they'd get out of the Gentile land, say, we're going to leave the defilement behind. We're not taking it with us. That land is defiled. It's unclean. Okay, so it meant removing the uncleanliness of the Gentile land, but here becomes a sign that, well, we brought the gospel to you. There's the good news of Christ. It's forgiveness of sins. It's all the things. But you don't want it. You go somewhere else. So that's where that idea came from. So they went on and took off the dust, as Jesus said, in Luke, and went to Iconium. Now, I get to use show and tell a little bit here. I bought all this, so I got to use it. So, um, this is about that very trip, and it says uh, on the top, you can't read that, but they shook off the depths of their feet against them and went on to Iconium. So, they were in Pisidian Antioch, and if you can see it, there's a yellow line on that slide heading over toward Iconium to the east. That's where they're traveling. Now, I have some other slides here. There's a lot of ancient material. Here's something um, that's found 32 miles west of Iconium. It's a bridge. I'm going to read the caption I have here on my notes. This well-preserved Roman bridge is located on the Via Sebaste, about 32 miles west of Iconium. He may have passed over this bridge each time he passed between Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And so there's the photograph of a bridge that would have been contemporaneous to Paul. And as I've been showing these slides, I'm emphasizing the historicity of the Bible and when it says about places, roots, one of the reasons the, go- the gospel could spread as fastly, as quickly as it did in Acts was because the Romans had such a great system at that ancient time of transportation and communication and the Greeks had provided a common language and so this could happen. This morning I was watching the news and they came on with somebody from Jerusalem standing on a, a road and they found um, or they just finished the excavation of a, of a road or path that went from the Pool of Shalom up to Jerusalem. Anybody else see that? This morning it was on the news. And this would have been a place that people were actually walking in the time of Jesus from Shalom up to Jerusalem. They had it on this morning's news. On Fox and Friends, of course. That's what I, But uh, one of the guys on there had been to Jerusalem and was very excited about it. And so they had a professor talking about that. So these are real places and real events. I'll show more next week on that. Let me... I got about seven minutes. 
I wanted to do a little bit more dealing with the culture we're facing. So now we know we've got to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now here is the main... I'm going to talk about emergent or postmodern would be a better way to say it nowadays. A postmodern idea is an attack against everything we believe and ultimately attack against any faith in Christ on his terms. And this attack is based on rejecting the ability to know the truth and to have valid categories. So I have a category, I have a heading here in this chapter. Why can't everybody be right? Have you heard that? Why can't everybody be right? Why do we have to say or do anything that somebody doesn't like? Have you noticed that? All it takes is for one person to say, I'm offended. And then everything has to change. And we scurry around, change this, change that, change the other thing. Somebody didn't like it. St. Louis Park made the national news. Did you see that? Yeah. You were on vacation. You missed it. I'm missing all sorts of things. St. Louis Park was on the national news. Do you know why? <clears throat> Anybody want to say why? The city council determined they could not say the Pledge of Allegiance. <clears throat> now... I guess they're going to rescind that. The mayor was out of town. But the reason it was stated by someone who was on that council was that there are people who are new who may not like it. They didn't even say somebody actually said they didn't like it. They wanted to make sure any immigrant that came would not feel badly because they had to pledge allegiance at City Hall. Now, I was talking to Brian, knowing he's very opinionated, and he lives in St. Louis Park. Is that right? So am I. Um, And we were thinking, wouldn't it be odd to think that way? Why can't everybody be right? I was just, they had a baseball game yesterday in uh, England. What if you were an American who moved to England? That happens a lot. You maybe marry somebody or whatever. Now you're in England. What if you got there as an American and said, I'm offended that you have a monarchy in this country. I'm offended by the Queen. I'm offended by Buckingham Palace. This isn't right. That's not how we do things in America. I'm offended. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, somebody said, I'm sure they'd apologize. Of course not. We, we wouldn't say that or do that out of respect, and they wouldn't change anything anyhow. So why would somebody come to a country that you know when you come, they, I would go to some other country, they'd pledge allegiance to their country. I'd expect it. Well, that's, that's how we made the national news. Especially when everything's free. Everything's free. Why wouldn't you come here? Yeah. Well, you can be welcoming, dear ones, and still maintain your own identity. So the diversity really is not a threat to being an American. That, but that's not my point here. Why can't everybody be right? Now, they invented a word 
that they're going to use in emergent postmodern theology so that everybody gets to be right. And the word is um, orthoparadoxy. Hold on to your hat. <laughs> We're going to embrace orthoparadoxy. Okay, so this is obviously uh, an absurdity. Okay, when I was a kid, there was this drawing they called a Paiute. At the bottom, it looked like square, and at the top, it looked like a bunch of circles. Am I the only one who remembers that? What's wrong with my brain? Why do I remember it? If I could draw, I'd draw you one. It looks like a real thing, but when you look at it, you couldn't engineer it. Uh, anyhow, that would be like an orthoparadoxy, a square circle. All right, now listen. Let me quote this guy from the Emergent Manifesto of Hope. The theological method of orthoparadoxy surrenders the right to be right for the sake of movement toward being reconciled with one another while simultaneously seeking to bring fullness of convictions to the other. Current theological methods often stress agreement, disagreement, win, loss, good, bad, orthodoxy, heresy. And some people offer battles. And as I told you last time I mentioned this, they're having a conversation. Now, orthoparadoxy is absurd because a paradox is a square circle and it's meaningless. And an orthodox paradox is absurd because it's either orthodox or heterodox. It's a valid either or if there's any kind of a definition. And so people, dear ones, they just love to throw out categories and then tell us we can't have them anymore. Right? You can't have truth there, good, evil, right, wrong, saved, lost. You can't have any categories. Everything's got to merge through our conversation. So then, as I mentioned a while back, somebody says, well, we're going to have a baby actually born, and then we'll have a conversation. Remember I mentioned that? Okay, so life and death now is a conversation. I'm telling you these things because I would be remiss to not warn the church. The Bible says that we're to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Repentance means you were going one direction, believing one set of things, and you turn from that and you believe in Christ, his resurrection, his status as God and man, that he is coming again in judgment, and that we need our sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus. There's no conversation that's going to suddenly make that something else. I hope you see that. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness and kindness and mercy and truth. And help us be strong in this situation we face every day. And help, you, help us to be bold in the gospel. And pray for Eric, Lord, that you would be 
working through him as he preaches your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.